Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Hi, Kathleen Garrett, Reed Smith, London-based restructuring partner here. Welcome back to our channel. We've been looking at some of the recent distress in the aviation sector, and I wanted to spend a few minutes looking at situations where the Cape Town Convention applies. So that is the Convention on International Interests in Mobile Equipment, because as we've mentioned in some of our other podcasts in this sequence, we've considered the implications of the Cape Town Convention and when it applies. And I thought it would be useful to get the insights of my colleague, Andrew Harper, from the Reed Smith London transportation team as to when the Cape Town Convention applies. So welcome, Andrew. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Kathleen. So yes, I mean, in terms of when the Cape Town Convention applies, I mean, I think it's it's worth bearing in mind that it is a convention which has several different protocols, aircraft, rail, space, and mining and agricultural equipment. So in the aviation context, you're looking at a situation where the relevant country has ratified both the actual convention itself, but also the aircraft protocol. And I think there you're looking at about 80 contracting states in total. Cape Town and the convention, it relates to the registration of either international interests or contracts of sale against what are designated as aircraft objects. Those are effectively airframes, engines, and helicopters that meet certain minimum weight or thrust conditions. And it's essentially applicable in two situations where the relevant debtor, which could be one of a number of entities, uh, whether it's lessee, mortgage, or, or a conditional buyer, where they're situated in a contracting state, or where the aircraft itself is registered in a contracting state. Okay, well, thanks, Andrew. It's interesting to me, the the situations, you you say the debtor could be a mortgagor or lessee, or the aircraft being situated in a contracting state. So it it does mean in a distressed situation, when you come to analyse whether some of the benefits and, and equally some of the challenges of the Cape Town Convention apply, there are you know, on what you describe, at least three or four ways in which a scenario can, if you like, come within Cape Town. Yes, I mean, that, that, that's right. I think uh, sort of drilling into into more detail in terms of international interests and, and contracts of sale, it's worth sort of perhaps distinguishing them. So in terms of international interests, there are, there are three categories of what can be created. So you effectively have either a lease, a security agreement, which would include mortgages and so forth, and also a conditional sale agreement. Contracts of sale, on the other hand, they can sort of relate to, they can be as simple as a mere agreement to sell, and that would be sort of registrable as a prospective sale, or it could be the actual mode of transfer itself, so the, so the bill of sale. And to apply generally, as, as sort of we noted before, I mean, it depends on where that relevant debtor is situated, whether it's the, the debtor being situated in a contracting state, or whether it's the aircraft being registered there. I guess the interesting nuance to note in those circumstances is that if you're looking to where the nexus is with the debtor 
situated in a particular contracting state, you can make registrations against both the airframe and the engines. But when you're looking at a sort of situation where the only nexus is the state of registration, then you can only make a, a registration against the airframe itself. Okay, that's very useful to, to, as you say, drill into some of the detail there. Secondly, moving on, on what does it apply to? You've talked about some of the the dimensions. Would you mind just breaking that down a little bit more for us? Sure. So in terms of who it could apply to, I mean, we have those three categories of international interest. So take a lease, for instance, there the lessee would be classed as the debtor with the international interest vested in the lessor as, as the creditor with a security agreement the debtor there is, as you'd expect, effectively the borrower stroke mortgage jaw, with the beneficiary as the, it could be the security trustee, or it could be, if it's a bilateral deal, it could just be the lender itself. And then you also have circumstances such as conditional sale agreements, where the debtor is the conditional buyer, and the creditor in those circumstances is the, is the seller. I have to say, though, in terms of sort of day-to-day life, you only really tend to see leases and security agreements for the most part. Okay, interesting. So when Cape Town applies, what does it mean in terms of various items ranging from ownership to priority to other matters? Do you want to just take us through that? Sure. So, I mean, the convention provides a degree of certainty that the the holder of the the relevant international interest rights will be recognised in that particular jurisdiction and, and they will enjoy the benefit of a prescribed repossession regime which can be you know, very helpful, I'm sure you're aware, in the context of, a, of an airline insolvency. The way it works and the convention is underpinned by a 24-7 online international registry where the relevant filings are made and their registration of interest is key to establishing priority, providing notice to the world. If you take a scenario where an international interest is created later than another but registered before it, then that would take priority. So ensuring you actually have your international interest registered with the IR is very key. Looking sort of the context of contracts for sale, it's worth noting, because sometimes this can be forgotten, that the international registry is not a title registry. You, you don't need to register contracts for sale there in order to perfect the sale of an aircraft or engine. But it does have that benefit of sort of establishing priority uh, in case there's any competing interests. And also it does have the the benefit of giving notice to third parties that those interests are recorded. And I guess generally in terms of the significance of the Cape Town Convention, you can sort of see it in how it's been reflected in the discounts that have been offered in certainly in ECA financing, for example, over the years. But it's, I guess, worth bearing in mind that ratification alone of the convention and, and, and the protocol is not necessarily a panacea for all ills. I think some people can look at that and think just because a particular state is a contracting state that they have the full benefit of Cape Town. But as we've seen over the years in terms of how it's been ratified in different jurisdictions, there have been a number of teething problems that do have to be overcome. Okay, super. Well, that that really is a very good good insight into the range of situations Cape Town applies to and and also some of the benefits it, it brings. So Kathleen, I mean, what, what do you consider to be the biggest challenges faced with the Cape Town Convention aviation-related restructures? Andrew, I think there are probably three areas. The first is in relation to the lack of certainty on when Alternative A of the Protocol to the Cape Town Convention applies. 
And in this respect, I don't propose to repeat, but it's been covered by one of our earlier podcasts. I think the second point relates to the Cape Town Convention and the, the, the protocol or alternative A appears to have been drafted from the point of view of lessee distress or airline distress as distinct from lessor distress. And I suppose the interesting scenario we've had in distress in the aviation market on account of COVID is that lessor distress has arisen and interpreting alternative A has thrown up some interesting issues. And again, we covered many of these in our earlier podcast. I think the third area, and it follows on from the second, is when the protocol and alternative A applies, it's very easy to apply a cookie cutter mindset. And I think it's very important to avoid that. Very relevant to establish firstly where the distress is. In many cases, COVID caused cases, the distress arises not just in one place. And so it can be necessary to run parallel analysis to arrive at an accurate read of the implications and indeed of the areas which are and will remain grey as the decided case law is built up over a period of time. Okay, thank you. I mean, turning to sort of US proceedings, do you, do you find that there's that the trend for the use of Chapter 11 is continuing in the distressed market? Yes, I, I think while we've seen a mix of processes and procedures used since 2020 in airline distress, the recent use by SAS of Chapter 11 is interesting and obviously it follows on from the use of the Chapter 11 process by Nordic Aviation Capital recently. So I suppose the that trend appears to continue. It is interesting to note that there is no decision by the US courts on whether they will apply the Cape Town Convention on Alternative A in a Chapter 11 process where the debtor is incorporated in a jurisdiction which has adopted the protocol and Alternative A. So that is an interesting outstanding. In, in contrast, we have seen situations where in a European context, European procedures have been used. So Norwegian Air Shuttle is an interesting example where we had a mix of European procedures used to implement its restructure. And I suppose the jury is still out, I think, on the best outcome. However, we would certainly advocate the approach of sense checking each distress situation by reference to its own facts and sense check the most appropriate procedure to use having regard to the desired outcomes. And so in sort of the current environment, when there's a number of challenges in the market, how might a creditor better protect itself? Yeah, that's an interesting one, Andrew. So first thing is housekeeping, attend to any outstanding registrations, review and check security and security filings, Cape Town perfections. Second, where aircraft are operated in non-Cape Town jurisdictions, look at the desirability of taking collateral locally. The reason we advocate this is that in the event of a subsequent Chapter 11, this can protect creditors against the risk of uh, superpriming collateral as part of the dip financing. And I think the final takeaway is where 
in volatile times, holding and taking collateral enhances creditor protection. It may state the obvious. However, where an industry is used to taking collateral in a particular way, as it moves through a cycle of distress, it's important to continue to bring fresh thinking to assessing the level to which security or collateral is taken and the extent to which it is perfected. Andrew, I'd like to thank you very much for taking part and shedding light on how Cape Town applies and the situations we should be sensitive to and the implication of it applying. Oh, you're very welcome. A pleasure. We hope our listeners will continue to listen to our podcast as part of the channel and we will be adding further sequences in relation not just to aviation but transportation more generally and other sectors. Thank you for joining us today. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.